We're talking about indispensable people. And without question, a great example of, indis of an indispensable person is Abraham Lincoln. Um, Abraham Lincoln was a great man, but obviously not born a great man. He, he wasn't born uh, with inherent greatness. He didn't have particularly good looks. Uh, didn't, wasn't known as a, as a young guy for a charming personality. He didn't yet have an educated mind. He certainly hadn't developed uh, polished leadership skills. This is something he grew into. What he was born with was uh, a tremendous ambition to do something great with, with his life. When he was running for office for the first time as a 23-year-old man, he wrote an open letter to those he hoped would vote for him, and he, he wrote, every man is said to have his peculiar ambition. I have no other ambition so great as that of being truly esteemed of my fellow men by rendering myself worthy of their esteem. It was his ambition for his future, what he believed his life could be, that caused him to fully engage in the development of himself. Abraham Lincoln was, as you know, a, a, a big man, well over six feet tall, but he was bigger inside. In fact, uh, in 1909, Leo Tolstoy, the great writer and thinker, described Lincoln as bigger than his country, bigger than all the presidents together. Lincoln was big inside. He was huge. But again, it wasn't always that way. Uh, an example of this would be an obscure season in the life of Lincoln where he was commissioned as a captain in the U.S. Army during the Black Hawk War of 1832. And the Black Hawk War, which you shouldn't feel bad about if you don't remember studying in seventh grade or something, is not a well-known uh, war in history. It was a, really a series of skirmishes between the United States and a couple of Native American tribes. And uh, Lincoln was an absolutely terrible military officer. In fact, uh, one story is that uh, he had trouble really organizing his troops well just to march them. On one occasion, he marched them across the field. They came to a fence. There was a, a gate by which he had to get his entire company through to the other side of the fence. He kept trying to figure out the right commands to give them to, to get organized, to file through this gate. He gave up, asked them to fall out and to reassemble on the other side of the fence. Where, whereupon he reorganized them and tried again. In fact, he was such a poor military commander that after this brief Black Hawk War, Lincoln, who started as a captain, was demoted to being a private. Some of his journals, some of the journals of the men he led describe him as, in one case, indolent and vulgar. By vulgar, they simply meant uneducated. Others regarded him as, quote, a joke and absurdity, and they had serious doubts about his courage. Now, a number of years later, less than 30 years later, Lincoln was the commander-in-chief who led this nation through one of the most uh, tragic periods of our history, though a necessary period, that changed this nation and changed the world forever. He was a great 
commander-in-chief. In fact, most people would say our greatest commander-in-chief. What in the world happened? between this captain demoted to private whose men didn't enjoy following him to this master of, 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 of leadership who had a depth of character and a, an ability to inspire that changed the world forever. What happened? Well, what happened is he grew. It's a simple thing to say. But he grew into the man he believed God had destined him to be. Lincoln knew that he had to align his emotional, mental, and spiritual realities with his dreams of greatness. And so for many years, Lincoln got up early, stayed up late, read voraciously, studied fervently, grappled with issues, honed his arguments, cared deeply, and spent time with others who helped expand his understanding. One biographer that I've read wrote, that Lincoln watched what went on about him and did a great deal of thinking. In his leisure time at home and on the circuit, he read the newspapers assiduously. His desire for understanding had become almost a passion. He was never satisfied in handling a thought until, as he said, he had bounded it east, west, north, and south and could express it in the simplest, clearest language. Lincoln became multidimensional in his development by mastering a variety of disciplines, including the teachings of the Bible, the mathematics of Euclid, the classics of Shakespeare. It's hard to imagine this nation or this world without Abraham Lincoln. He is a marvelous example of again of what we're calling an indispensable person he played a necessary role in this world and one that it seemed like he alone was destined to play but he didn't start out as that great person who we think of when we think of lincoln he intentionally developed himself into the man he finally became what do we mean when we talk about an indispensable person? Well, an indispensable person is a person that this world doesn't want to be without. An indispensable person is someone that this world wants to witness. We've discussed in recent weeks how we've each been designed to play a unique role in this world. But the fact that we've been designed to play this unique role doesn't mean that we're actually doing it. Usually there's a gap between where we are and where we're supposed to be, between who we are and who we're supposed to be, and, and it's a gap that we have to participate intentionally in closing. So in order to live out our indispensability, to actually play our God-designed role in this world, we must grow into the fully realized person God made us to be. Now one sense is that Abraham Lincoln's dreams were what we often refer to here as God-inspired dreams. That God made Lincoln to want to do what he ended up doing and helped him do it. 
This world needed him, and God made Lincoln to meet that moment. But it's also apparent that if Lincoln would not have developed himself, that he couldn't have become the person God made him to be. So here's a question I want us to ponder today. Is it possible that our lack of personal development thwarts God's plans for our lives? Is it possible that God has dreams for us, a moment that we've been made to meet, that are missed because of our lack of intentionality in developing ourselves to be the person God made us to be. Now, I think that Scripture is actually quite clear in this regard. There's this great passage where Paul writes to the Corinthians. I love this passage. I've taught about it many, many times. He writes to the Corinthians and he essentially says, God has great dreams for you, but he can't even let you know what those dreams are because you're gonna have to grow up in order for him to even speak to you properly. First Corinthians two, verse nine, Paul wrote, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. And then Paul goes on to talk about how the Holy Spirit in us lets us know the very mind of God about the things that he's destined for our lives. But then Paul goes to another level that is a little bit discouraging, actually, when he says in that context, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? In other words, he says, God has dreams that are so big for your life that human eyes can't see it, human ears can't hear it, and the human mind can't conceive it. But he then turns around and says, but I can't even talk to you about it because God's plans are so big for you that only the spirit of God can reveal it to you, but I can't treat you like your people living in the spirit because you are so immature in your relationships with one another. You're quarreling, you're jealousy, you're worldly. You're just acting like mere human beings. You're not acting like human beings who are indwelt by God's spirit. You're just acting like everybody else is acting in the world around you. I hope you get the point. There are big things God has for our life that unless we grow, they can't be realized. So we've been talking about indispensable people. Our model of an indispensable person from Scripture has been David, the second king of Israel. Remember, uh, it was said of him, Acts 13, that God chose David because David was a man after God's own heart, and God knew that David would fulfill his will completely. But the fact that God saw this indispensable potential in the heart of David doesn't mean that David wasn't on a lifelong journey of personal development. 
He had a, the right potential in his heart, but he spent a life having his heart worked on, if you please. And you, you know, that's why you can find David praying prayers like, um, you know, create in me a clean heart, renew in me a right spirit. Because the fact is that just because we have potential in our heart doesn't mean the potential will be realized unless we're willing to go on a journey with ourselves and with God to become the person that God believes we can become when he looks at us. So we've been teaching through five kind of heart qualities, if you please. Uh, We call these the five eyes of indispensable people. These are actually our staff team values here at TLCC, the kind of people we're trying to be. The five eyes of indispensable people, we've taught about the first three, integral, inspired, initiating. Today I'm gonna talk about the fourth eye, intelligent, And then next week, by God's grace, I'll finish this series by talking about the fifth eye, which is insistent. So so today, I want to talk about how indispensable people are constantly getting smarter in their mind, heart, relationships with one another, and area of destiny. The fourth eye of indispensable people is this. Indispensable people are intelligent people. So I'll offer four thoughts uh, in this, uh, with this in mind and the other things I've said so far today in mind. I'll spend most of my time on the first two and uh, briefly treat the last two. So here's the first. Here's the first one. The first way that indispensable people are intelligent people. Intelligent people are constantly expanding their intellect by loving and practicing learning. By the way, if you're kind of new to us and you wonder what all these people around you are riding on, well, somewhere in a seat back pocket close to you, there are what we call life notes where you can follow along if you want to and take notes. And a lot of people pick up a notebook thing out in the resource lounge to keep these notes in. And when they can't go to sleep at night, they look at these notes and they immediately fall asleep. So, uh, or you can use the paper and doodle little things and write notes to your person beside you like he really is bald or whatever it is that you feel like writing. All right, so intelligent people are constantly expanding their intellect by loving and practicing learning. Here's some good news, guys. We can get smarter. Some of you are saying thank, you're looking at your spouse and saying thank God. So. The guy that developed the IQ test is a guy named Alfred Binet. He developed this test in the early 1900s. And he didn't mean for the test to become what it seems to have become, though this is changing now. Uh, He didn't mean for it to, to, to mark a static condition of intellectual capacity. He meant for it to be a baseline from which people could grow and develop themselves, and he believed that IQ could actually be increased by someone who wanted to increase it. He wrote, with practice, training, and above all, method, we manage to increase our attention, our memory, our judgment, and literally to become more intelligent than we were before. Now, recent science has 
proven this more and more, that though we are born with a certain intellectual uh, genetic reality, that any of us have the ability, if we want to, to actually increase our IQ. Carol Dweck, who wrote a wonderful book called Mindset and is a professor of psychology, was at Columbia and now uh, is at Stanford, she wrote, each person has a unique genetic endowment People may start with different temperaments and different aptitudes, but it is clear that experience, training, and personal effort take them the rest of the way. Robert Sternberg, who you may have heard of, uh, who's considered a, an eminent kind of guru on the subject of intelligence, wrote that the major factor in whether people achieve expertise is not some fixed prior ability, but purposeful engagement. Now, let's take the intellect part and put it off to the side just for a moment, and, and let me say something that I think is incredibly important. I think obvious on its face, but perhaps we don't think about it enough. That is to say that we have the capacity to constantly get better at life. We have the capacity to get better at life in every way. When Scripture calls us, for instance, to grow up into Christ, when Paul wrote, become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, it's because we can. We actually can grow from where we are and who we are to be more like Jesus. And we really can grow in many other areas. The fix is not in. You are not stuck in your present reality unless you want to be. You don't have to say, well, that's just the way it is concerning most things in your life, and certainly not about your own person. You are not predestined, for instance, to have a terrible temper. You are not predestined to always fail at love or to be pessimistic, or to, to, to follow financially destructive habits, or to some particular sin pattern that will destroy you and damage others. The fact is, you can grow into the person that God made you to be. And this includes having the capacity to expand your intellect. You do not have to play a perpetually starring role in your own movie called Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> you can get smarter. I enjoyed saying that for some reason. Research shows that, as David Brooks wrote in his kind of compendium of uh, stuff on the social sciences, social animal, David Brooks says that all the research shows that even our IQ is surprisingly malleable. Now, I'm going to guess there are a lot of folks who've never really thought about that, literally. Perhaps this is a big revelation to us. We can get smarter. But in order to get smarter, we have to invest in learning. We have to want to get smarter. We have to be intentional about getting smarter. Education should be for us a way of life, preparing us to live to the fullest extent of our potential. Growing people make learning, again, intentional. Stephen Covey uh, said, principle-centered people. 
are constantly educated by their experiences. They read, they seek training, they take classes, they listen to others, they learn through both their ears and their eyes. They discover that the more they know, the more they realize they don't know. Hey guys, it amazes me how many people quit intentionally learning when the formal educational process is over. So you finished, you know, your undergraduate studies at, you know, 22 or your graduate degree at some point a few years later, and it's like, well, I've, what, what, did you learn everything that you needed to know to become the person God destined you to become? I mean, we know the answer to that is no. Yet many of us have no kind of intentional learning plan in our lives where we're trying to get better, get smarter about any number of things. Do you know that the last time uh, I uh, heard the, the statistic on this, that the average American only reads two books a year? Somebody just said, people read that much? Now, this is a church full of smart people. Seriously, I'm not trying to patronize you. It's just a fact that we attract people for whatever reason who want to learn. Well, you, you may not enjoy you know, sitting down and reading a book, but, you, but frankly, you should make yourself do that some or find some way to be gaining new knowledge in your life, whether it's an audio book or the, the, the gazillion podcasts that are out there about any number of subjects or, 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 or starting new things. Like, you know, I've been to a few museums in my life, uh, but in recent years, I've kind of made that a, a new thing that I'm spending a lot of time doing because of the kind of learning, a different kind of learning I experience, and I walk through a great museum. Whatever it may be, we all need to find a way to get smarter. Genius, to some extent, can actually be learned. I read uh, uh, last year, I believe, I read um, Walter Isaacson's marvelous biography of Leonardo da Vinci. I think, Pete Caputo, you suggested it to me, and I appreciate it. And um, one of the arguments that Isaacson, who also uh, wrote great biographies of Einstein and uh, Steve Jobs, one of the arguments he makes about da Vinci is he, 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 didn't, he wasn't at one, one year old, he wasn't a genius. To some extent, his genius was learned. If you've ever been to the Louvre and you've seen um, the Mona Lisa, which I've had the privilege to do and have written about, um, it's quite an experience to see this, what many people consider to be the greatest painting in the world, but to understand the backdrop that led to his ability to paint Mona Lisa's smile. Here's what Isaacson wrote. The Mona Lisa is the work of a man who had immersed himself in a lifetime of intellectual passions. His thousands of notebook pages, of light rays, striking curved objects, dissections of human faces, geometrical volumes being transformed into new shapes, flows of turbulent water, the analogies between the earth and human bodies had helped him fathom the subtleties of depicting motion and emotion. 
One person, Kenneth Clark, wrote, his insatiable curiosity, his relentless leaps from one subject to another have been harmonized in a single work, the science, the pictorial skill, the obsession with nature, the psychological insight are all there and so perfectly balanced that at first we are hardly aware of them. What's the point again? The ability to draw the Mona Lisa wasn't just some God-given artistic ability. Now, certainly there was that, but, but there are a lot of people who have God-given artistic ability, but who could never do something that really represented greatness. What did da Vinci do? He spent a lifetime studying all kinds of things. He was relentlessly curious. He could draw that smile because he dissected, I don't know, many, many bodies and studied the way that human muscles work and all this stuff and um, uh, I'd encourage you by the way boy I'm really sidetracked right now right now at the Met I happen to see this I think last Monday right now at the Met da Vinci's Saint Jerome which is an, an uncompleted painting is being displayed right now and you can see the way that he started a painting by by drawing I guess the substructure of a human being I'm here's the point the point is it wasn't just a stroke of genius that allowed the Mona Lisa to be created rarely do people just stroke genius they take God-given capacities and they work hard to get smart to be able to do indispensable things. Now, those of us who, who believe in and follow Jesus have an unfair advantage as it concerns the rest of the world, as it concerns learning. And that is that we have the ability, in fact, the responsibility. But I like to think of it as a privilege to study God and his word. And when we do, to know that we can tap into the intelligence behind the entire universe. It's a great definition of the discipline of study offered um, by some great Christian minds. Here's what they wrote. Study is the intentional process of engaging the mind with the written and spoken word of God and the world God has created in such a way that the mind takes on an order conforming to the order upon which it concentrates. A lot of words I know kind of had to think about it for a while before I understood it. Let me sum it up for you like this. When we study God and his word and, the, and his world, the world he created, it orders our mind. The mind, of course, is the faculty for knowing, for understanding, for moral reflection. The mind is primarily the seat of the intellect. And when we get our minds right, we put ourselves in a position to get a lot of other things in our lives right as well. And we can, as believers, actually, through the Holy Spirit and God's word, know God more and more and know his mind. And when we do, we can think right about all the issues of life. If we study anything we should study God and his word and the world that he created knowing that it gets our mind right fundamentally right and it allows us to approach all other learning from a perspective of a higher intelligence literally the mind of Christ operating through us I mean no wonder David said 
Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Whatever they do prospers. If we get that right, we are on our way to getting a lot of things in our lives right. When we know God, we know the knower of everything. Here's my second thought. Intelligent people understand that smart emotions are essential to a well-lived life and accept responsibility to teach and manage their emotions. Now, as most of us are very aware now, our understanding of intelligence has grown in recent years to comprehend that IQ is important, but that emotional intelligence is probably even more important. As Daniel Goleman, who wrote the landmark book kind of teaching us about the science that had been done around this subject said, he said, we have two brains. We have a brain that's, the, 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 if you please, the mind, and we have a brain that is, if you please, the heart. And the fact is, we have to get smart in our minds, and we have to get smart in our hearts in order to live out our indispensability. Dostoevsky, in his classic, The, uh, the Idiot, uh, has a character who said, a fool with no heart and no brains is as unhappy a fool as a fool with brains and no heart. The fact is, we need to be smart in both. Here's my I'm sure way too long definition of emotional intelligence. I'll speak to it for a few minutes. Emotional intelligence is the growing capacity, and I wanna make an emphasis on the word growing. It's so important that as we all look around here and we do life with each other, and this is especially true in terms of the family and especially true in, in, in the context of marriage, it's important that we always view each other and celebrate each other as growing people. And, and that we focus more on the fact that someone is growing than we focus on how much they need to grow. It's amazing how that that creates a faith environment that actually helps somebody grow. If you're just always saying, you know, you're dumb, that's not as helpful as saying you have so much potential <laughs> or, or I really, wow, I really celebrate whatever it is. It sounds patronizing. Don't really do it quite like that. I really celebrate whatever it is. I notice that you're less angry or I notice that you, you seem to have a positive attitude more. I mean, this is amazing when everybody, instead of judging each other because of where they're at, is always encouraging someone on where they came from and where they have the potential to go. So I like to say that emotional intelligence is the growing capacity to identify, teach, manage, express, and leverage our emotions in ways that help us live and love fully. Listen, you're very well aware that emotions are not inherently evil. People who act as if they are uh, do a disservice to themselves and everybody they care about. Jesus, though God, was a man, and as a human being, he had normal human emotions. He shed tears, he was filled with joy, he grieved, he was angry, he was sad at times, he felt sorrow, he showed astonishment and wonder, he felt distress, 
He had emotions. Human beings have emotions. Emotions are not in and of themselves negative. They're positive. The question is, do we have smart emotions? We should always be growing in our emotional intelligence and asking questions like, what am I feeling? Why am I feeling this? What should I do with this feeling? And we must, as my definition of emotional intelligence suggests, identify, teach, manage, express, and leverage our emotions intelligently. What do I mean by that in brief? I think it's self-explanatory, but nonetheless, since I've been thinking about it this week, and perhaps you haven't, when I, when I say that emotional intelligence is to identify our emotions, it's we need and I've been trying in recent years to do this intentionally. What, what am I feeling and why do I feel it? To identify. A lot of times, according to Goldman and other uh, students of emotional intelligence, we don't get to choose the emotion that comes on us. It d comes on us. But we, if we're smart, we ask, what am I feeling and why am I feeling it? And then we teach the emotion, if you please, how to feel better. This is where I think that the mind, especially the mind that's being conformed to the mind of Christ and the mind that's being informed by God's word, the mind has to tell the feelings how the feelings should be feeling. So I identify what I feel, but, but that's not the end of it. Then I say, if you please, maybe what should I be feeling or how can I help this feeling become something positive rather than negative? And we manage our emotions. We make sure that our emotions don't go out of boundaries and become improper in their expression. And then we, in a healthy way, hopefully, express our emotions. We're not supposed to suppress them. We're supposed to express them in healthy ways. We don't become passive aggressive people who act like we never feel and then it shows up in all kind of negative ways. We're healthy people who are able to say, I'm angry about this and here's why I'm angry about this and can we find a positive way to then the next thing, leverage our emotions. Because if we're smart in our hearts, we actually can use our emotions to accomplish good things. Here's a great example in a big way. But I think this can play out in our lives in ways great and small. Dr. Martin Luther King took anger, righteous indignation, and turned it into a dream. So in other words, I'm not just going to vent and disrupt, I'm gonna take this somehow and I'm gonna take injustice, which I'm rightfully angry at, and I'm gonna try to bring about justice in the world around me. In ways great and small, we take the things we feel, which often we have good reason to feel them, not all the times, but often we have good reasons to feel, 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 them, feel them, and we take them and we leverage them, we use them to, to somehow accomplish something important in the world around us. Another great example of someone practicing emotional intelligence, though he didn't always, and certainly none of us do, 
is David, who we've been talking about over the last few weeks, and David's ability to soothe himself. Again, Goleman in Emotional Intelligence says that one of the fundamental life skills of an emotionally intelligent person is the ability to soothe themselves. That's fascinating language, I think. What does that look like? Where there's this great example in the life of David where he had a tremendous setback and he was distressed. 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, David was greatly distressed. Was the fact he was distressed a sin? No. Did it say something negative about David that he was not just distressed but greatly distressed? No. The problem would be is if in his great distress, he did something destructive to himself or to people around him. The problem would be if his distress in that moment became distress that, that lived through his lifetime. But when he was greatly distressed, David then encouraged himself in the Lord his God. He identified what he felt and then he taught what he felt to feel better because he knew that that setback in the light of God's grace and God's purpose and God's plan and what he'd been through in the past was something that would somehow or another work its way out. So David soothed himself. He encouraged himself in the Lord his God. One of the greatest uh, ways I think to work on emotional intelligence. And this is something that I try to practice regularly as I work on my own emotional intelligence is reading the Psalms of David. Because David was a guy who wasn't, a, first of all, he was very human and he felt all kind of human things. But when he felt human things and acknowledged feeling human things, he would always talk to himself in a way that reflected who God was, God's purposes, God's plans, God's goodness, God's sovereignty. And he would talk himself, if you please, back into a place where he was encouraged. Great example, Psalm 42:11. Why David speak talking to himself? He's talking to his soul. He's talking to his emotions, if you please. Why, my soul, are you downcast? So how did David feel in this moment? Downcast. He didn't say, oh no, I have too much faith to be downcast. That's lying to yourself. That's not proper, that's not biblical. He was downcast. How do you feel, David? Downcast. Now the problem is if David's gonna stay that way. So he talks to his soul. Why are you downcast, my soul? Why so disturbed within me? How you feeling, David? Disturbed. But he's gonna talk himself out of it. Put your hope in God, he says to himself, for I will yet praise him, my savior and my God. So let's bring this back to the gospel. I like to then say that, that the fruit of the spirit is emotional intelligence. Now I think we should study everything we can about everything we can, including a subject like emotional intelligence. We should read, we should go to workshops, we should learn the skills around this. I have learned and am learning a lot about this in recent years because of need in my own life to get smarter in my heart. 
And I think we should be doing all of that. But the most important thing always, guys, this is where this is about Jesus and this is about faith. It's not about religion and it's not about self-help. Always the most important thing is to cultivate our relationship with Jesus in a way that allows his spirit to develop things in us that are beyond our mere human capacity. And a great example of what happens when we do that is what Paul wrote to the Galatians, the fruit of the spirit. Now here's a beautiful description of emotional intelligence. What happens when the spirit is at work in your life is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Somebody says, you seem to be growing in self-control. What did you do? Did you go to a workshop? Well, maybe or maybe not, but I've been praying more. I've been studying scripture more. I've been going to my small group. I've been attending church more. What's that have to do with self-control? Everything. Why? The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So more than anything else, we cultivate our relationship with Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is helping us become more like Jesus in every area of our life. Here's, and man, I need to hurry now. Here is the third thought, and I'll be quick with these last two. And I want to remind you, in case you're nervous about this, if I go over a little bit, always remember, I'm not going to charge you extra. I don't, it's the same either way. Uh, Some, a guest is saying, they charge? No. I'm just being unsmart and silly. Here's the third. Intelligent people study interpersonal dynamics and constantly improve their ability to practice loving relationships. This is obviously social intelligence. Social intelligence is absolutely necessary to live out our indispensability. We need all three intelligence. We need to get smarter in our mind, we need to get smarter in our heart, and we've gotta get smarter in our relationships. Social intelligence is being aware of other people's needs and emotions and acting intelligently in our relationships with them. I love and I'm frightened by what Peter wrote about uh, a husband and his relationship to his wife. He said, um, husbands, be considerate as you live with your wives. And for some reason, I didn't get the last part of this on the screen behind me, but let me tell you how the passage ends, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. The King James says it very eloquently, and I think even more insightfully, likewise, ye husbands, when you hear ye before husbands and you're a husband, you know you're in trouble. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them, your wives, according to knowledge, that your prayers be not hindered. In other words, the apostle Peter is saying, hey husbands, If you want your relationship with God to be right, you have to be smart in your relationship with your wife. Dwell with them according to knowledge. You say, well, but men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Yes, that's true. But we have to figure it out somehow. And this is a responsibility that we have, and I'm gonna now overlay that on relationships in general. We have to be smart 
about who other people are, what other people have experienced, what other people are feeling. And some of us, and I would probably fall in that category, are not naturally good at that. But we don't get to excuse ourselves. We've got to grow. And I hope I'm further ahead than I was a year ago and five years ago and 10 years ago. And I hope 10 years from now to be a whole lot further down the road. But this is what I, want, this is what I know. If I'm going to live the life God dreamed for me, I have to get smart in my relationships with other people. I have to be socially intelligent. So some, some of us husbands are, are concerned that if we're not considered in the way we live with our wife, we're concerned about what we may not get from them. But God says, listen, it's worse than that, buddy, because if you're not smart in your relationship with your wife, your prayers will be hindered. Sorry. We can grow. Last week I talked about how that... Um, David failed in his relationship with his son Absalom. No time to talk about it today except to say that David wasn't very smart in his relationship with his son Absalom, and the story did not end up well, including Absalom acted out in terrible ways and suffered terrible consequences, and so did David. But David had a lot of responsibility in it because he was the leader in the home. But the beauty is, is that one of the great things that happens at the end of David's life story is that he has what appears to be, in the context of the times, a wonderful relationship with his son Solomon, who became the successor, sat on his throne and David was actively engaged with him, mentoring him. I only say that for one reason. You can look at the scripture later. It's noted in your life notes. But I say that for one reason. It's that he failed with one son, but he didn't just say, well, I guess I'm just not good at being a dad. Because when he got another shot, he got it right. You understand? And all of us need to be seeing our lives that way. We can get better by God's grace. And fourth, intelligent people intentionalize developing knowledge and skills in their specific area of responsibility. They strive to become experts in what they are called and tasked to do. It's very simple, no time to get into it at length, but whatever you've been assigned to, whatever your callings are, 